Welcome to Hep Talks. I'm Luke Kemper, and my guest for this episode is Marva Rollins, a school improvement partner for Haringey Education Partnership and a member of the Racial Equity Steering Group. Before we start, a quick note. This episode talks about race, racism, and other potentially sensitive topics. Marva and I had this conversation earlier in the year, soon after the National Foundation for Education Research released its report titled Racial Equality in the Teacher Workforce. The report's headline finding was that all racial groups, aside from white, are underrepresented as they move up the teacher pipeline toward leadership roles. That was the starting point for my conversation with Marva and should provide some context for our listeners. The rest of the discussion follows from there. And so, without further explanation, here is my conversation with Marva Rollins. My name is Marva Rollins, and I'm currently the director of my own consultancy. And the work I do for Haringey is through HEP, and I'm a school improvement partner. But I also am one of the co-leaders of what's still being called the BAME Reviews, but which focus on black and black heritage children and that's that's probably the bigger role that I play I'm a member of of the steering group and part of the SLT champions group and the governors group and collectively they're the the platform for Haringey to look at what's happening in schools following the 2019 um, attainment gaps that were um, that were identified and so I go into lots of schools. I talk to school leaders, I talk to teachers, I talk to children, I talk to parents, and I talk to governors around the reviews. Can you go into a little bit uh, more about your background outside of HEP as well? Oh, yeah. I was a head teacher for nearly 25 years, 24 years and two months. But alongside that, and I'm going to mention Don Ferdinand here because I have to, Don Ferdinand and I have worked closely together to drive forward the anti-racist agenda. And part of that is that for eight years, we ran a program called Investing in Diversity for the Institute of Education, um, which looked focused on middle leaders from what I'm going to call now the global majority, supporting them in getting into senior leaders. So deputy heads into headships, middle leaders into deputy headship, and teachers who were looking to become middle leaders doing that. And I spend much of my, I would say, spare time. And and I also, that's that's one of the things, I also work for the NUTNEU on Equal Access to Promotion. I've been doing that for 10, 11 years now with another colleague. And I do a lot of speaking about, not just about race, but a lot of it's about race. I do speak, I'll speak about most things. But most of all, I've spent over 40 years fighting for um, the right level of support, for instance, for sickle cell sufferers, for the Caribbean elders. But that's my life and my life's purpose. Yeah. So, yes, I returned from headship, but I carry on doing that. And I work a lot with, um, and it is a lot with young colleagues going for promotion. It's one thing having a degree. It's another thing bringing your other, knowing what other skills you need to help you to get a job. So you get to, for instance, you have a degree to get to be a head teacher, 
but that doesn't give you the skills of leadership. It doesn't give you the skills of management. You have to get those skills in doing other things as well, not just in schools, because those skills, in my case, is what helped me to get to leadership. Working in the community was the backdrop for my quick um, progression in leadership and education. Great. Yeah. No, thank you for that, Marva. And that segues perfectly into uh, what what we're going to talk about in the podcast, right? Which is your report on uh, inequalities in, in progression in education. Yeah. It's one of the most almost over-researched areas in terms of what happens next. So we have the government writing uh, reports and we have organizations writing reports and we have research students writing their dissertations about Black experiences and Black under attainment in, in this, and Black boys in particular and Black girls to a certain extent under attainment in this country. And the first one, anyone who's been around for a long time, I know you haven't been in this country, would be the Bernard Cord report in, in 1971-72. And that was called How the British Educational System Has Made the West Indian Child Educationally Subnormal. So that's the probably the first art, that's the first education-based report in this country. But in terms of black people in this country, there had there are lots of um like so now we have the Equality Act, there's lots of race relations acts, 165, 68, probably earlier than that, that have been brought into place as a result of black people saying we're not having this, this isn't good enough. But then it was dependent on industry, different organizations to implement the changes. So a lot of the directive stood at national level, but it was not mandatory for anything anything to happen. I mean, like now it's under the Equality Act, it's even a broader remit. So my, my position is that one more report is one report too many because it replicates the other reports that's gone before. And from where I sit as a black woman, that's why I said, so what, what action? And therefore, when, when this report came out, Dawn and I got together and we've, um, we've engaged Bola in it to say, let's look, if we are gonna look at this, let's look again. And that's my frustration, that I would rather get on and do something in the best I can, whether it's at national level or local level, so that I can see an impact on whatever these um, reports have been saying, whether they're guidance, whether they say they're mandatory, protective categories, whatever. So that's where my frustration lies in that here we who sits around writing these things and then how do how, what's the follow through right right so what do you think are some proposals that could help combat this systemic racism or or what are some of the things that you and you and Don talked about i can't have to say i can't remember them all because we went through them and we talked about what we could do we talk about what we have done because Don and i've done a lot in our time to um to address the the gaps um, so one of the things we talk about is the program. Don and I ran Investing in Diversity for eight years. And 
I'm currently running equal access to promotions for the it was NUT now NEU. So we've run programs. We've run programs to look at to support um, what you call BAM and we now call the global majority um, teachers into the higher levels because we can sometimes get to middle leadership, but that's often where the majority of us stay. And it's getting that next step. First of all, getting some people to middle leadership and then the next step into senior leadership. And that's where the disparity has been for a long, long time. And I have to say, I became ahead in 95 and there wasn't even a percentage, but the percentage is a better percentage because you can't get worse than no percentage. So there's a percentage there, but it drifts, yeah? It goes up a bit, three, five, six, seven percent, then it drifts down again because people retire as well. And a lot of our, a lot of our communities step away from education, some, not all, let me just not use all. Some head teachers, like some white head teachers, step away from the job because it's challenging in different ways if you're a black head because you, you always seem to be representing so one of the things we're looking at is what programs we can run and there are other areas that we can look at. For me, I find the programs my most practical way of influencing change. And it's been at a national level, it's a local national local level, Tower Hamlets, I'm currently running a six months program for their middle leaders. So yeah, so we do that. And for some people, some people can sit on a global stage and support from there. I do that, but then I come local and make sure that some things can happen. I can't change the world. I can't eradicate racism, but I can influence where I can. I can influence change where I can. But my frustration lies in, here goes, here comes another report. And of course, they're all if you like, cite previous research. So you only have to look at the, the, the credits at the end. She said, well, that's been said before, that's been said before, that's been said before, that's been said before. So excuse me if I think, if I roll my eyes a bit, really. So do you think that generally the people in England are aware of this systemic racism, given all these reports that keep coming out and not much seems to be changing? Are people aware of that? Do those reports help people become aware or is it is it just not the way of getting the message out to people in the country? I think at a, at they're, they're layers, aren't they? Because the society is layered, isn't it? So I think the average person who gets up in the morning and just needs to get through the next day may or may not be aware of that level of research. Academics are, organizations are, and this, the challenge for organizations in terms of when we think of institutional racism, we make it sound like a body, like a thing in itself, that it's a it's a it's an institutional thing. When I speak, institutions are made up of individual people. So within those institutions are the beliefs, the feelings, the practices of different people. And if some people are extremely racist, some people will say I'm anti-racist, but they all sit side by side. 
instance. But historically, the institutions are based on racism anyway. They might not say that, but they're based on the notion of them and us, one and others. Yeah? And the one is the white community and the others are everyone else. And I'm going to say it here because on this platform, I'm going to say it here. When you say people of color, it says white is not a color. So that's, but that's my personal beef. Yeah. So that's why the term global majority sits better with me because then I could, because we are, black and brown people are the global majority. But so there's lots of narratives. People say it's correct narratives but there are lots of correct narratives that we have to be thinking about. It's not one narrative that sorts everything out. But so organizations, some organizations are trying, but who you employ and how you change, because things like racism and sexism, it's not just a policy or principle, it's a feeling. Yeah, it's how you feel about a black person, a woman, uh, someone disabled, how do you feel? And that feeling, which should be around empathy, drives you to what you're doing. So it's not as straightforward as in a school, we're gonna change, we're gonna look at, yeah, we look at equality, equal opportunities, of course we will. But it's sitting in that room of varying opinions. So how does a school leader be assured that their principles of anti-racism is filtering through their organization. So you, you kind of mentioned that not so much progress has been made on, let's say, a national uh, level. But what about in HEP schools? Do you see some difference in BAME achievement and also representation? It's difficult to look at attainment because we've started and the focus for the reviews are Black and Black heritage children. So it's not the whole of the communities that are deemed to be minorities in this country. So that's the focus, Black and Black heritage children, because that was, uh, over, that was a response to the 2019 data. So there are changes. Um, and if you listen, I've done about th over 30 reviews now, in schools for Harringay. So I would say that there are changes, but there's a lot of learning that has to take place. Because if you've taught history in a particular way since you qualified 10, 15, 30 years ago, or even five years ago, and now someone is saying to you, but you know what, this, this, is, this is not balanced. This is not, this is not telling the two sides of what of what has gone on yet um, isn't reflective. It's it's based on colonialism and things like that. That's why there's a lot of talk about decolonizing the curriculum. So, so lots of teachers and schools have had to shift because that's what the curriculum was like. They've had to shift to a different way of looking. So, if you're looking at slavery which I think needs to be handled very, very carefully because what happened all those years ago can still traumatise a young black child in a school today in a way that maybe um, learning about how many of his wife, Henry VIII, beheaded or divorced may not traumatise a white child. Um, and often if you're doing a, a topic like slavery and you're the only one or two, three black children in your class, 
You have to be mindful about the narrative you're using. And that's where support from the Black community is, is needed. But in Haringey schools, we have, we're on a journey. The one, and, but there are lots of schools in Haringey, and I've, I've only been into 34 of them out of the 80, out of the 80 of them. So, but I would like to think that the other schools also don't all might think, well, I don't need Marva to come and look at what we're doing. I can look at what we're doing ourselves, which is really good to be, to be that um, outward looking. But from 2019 to now, there's a shift. But I don't know, in the last steering group meeting, the question came up about, so does greater representation result in greater attainment? And I have no, there's no data on that in this country. The only reference I can make, not to the group, but to the young person who asked the question, is to look at what happens in America and how many black organizations are set up, schools are set up to ensure that the black children get a good deal. And there it is evident that black, well, it's more than representation, representation and ambition and a drive for the young people. So it's not just, oh, let's have, more black people in leadership on let's have more black people in the classroom. Of course, that's important, but the impact and what's the message then that, that we're using to represent our colleagues. So I cannot guarantee that greater representation will impact on attainment. I'm hoping that greater reviews and greater and closer looking at what we're doing and what we're teaching and how we're viewing the black boy, the black girl sitting in our class. I'm hoping that that understanding is the shift because we will never have enough black teachers in the schools in Haringey. And then it's not up to them alone to make the shift. It's about how collectively we make the shift and recognize that maybe, just maybe, and most definitely in some cases, there's bias going on. Right, right. But of course, I, I mean, I, I suppose that um, having more Black leaders, especially, would be helpful in making that shift. Absolutely, 100%. It would be useful. And the Black leaders would then begin to address that gap in leadership, yeah, because the black leaders are going to be leading white, I'm speaking from experience, white teachers, teachers from different um, cultural groups, children from different cultural groups, but certainly being represented there, it gives a, it gives a recognition, by the way, that our talents are being recognised. My whole being is about greater representation, is about getting our people where they are, but making sure they're prepared and that we can we can get there and stay there. Because there's an additionality that we bring, but part of that additionality is accountability and being held to account and being seen as not only a head teacher, a black head teacher, or an Asian head teacher or Bengali head teacher, um, whatever cultural group you define yourself by. Thank you. 
Can you maybe explain a little bit more of what you mean about that accountability? It is, it is a blessing and it's a challenge as well because we need to be there. But Black parents looking for support uh, would expect us to be the great supporters. Yeah, they want their, their, their support to be there. They need to see support in senior leadership. They need someone sitting around the table with a perspective of what it's like to have walked a certain journey. And that's part of the issue as how do you, as a white middle-class man, perceive the experiences of a 15-year-old black boy who haven't walked anywhere near in his shoes? As black people, we have walked in those shoes again and again and again, either directly or through our children or to our brothers, through our sisters. So we come to the table with an understanding that low expectation is often a great factor in what our children achieve. I'm not saying all black children are angels, by the way. Some are, some are a bit interesting, but it is the disparity between how they're treated for the same incident as a white 15-year-old boy would be treated. And I've heard white boys tell me that in some of the reviews in Tower Hamlets. But the research plays that out as well. So as a leader, we come to represent, we represent our people, but we represent a story and we represent a history and it's a long history. And for a lot of us, we have to know our real history, yeah? So we need to go back to pre-Benin times, not just rush back to slavery, um, to know our roots. And we have to be more confident about who we are, I think, than a white-haired teacher. And we might need more support because we can be so isolated. Because being the one black head teacher in a room might seem okay if you're not that one black head teacher. And if you are that one black head teacher, as I've been for so many times, and I sit in a room, I think, well, I don't know why they're going on about that, but I need to say something in this meeting. And I might speak once or twice, but often I just really want to get back to school and get on with teaching my children. But I understand that I have to be there. And the increase in black leaders and black and um, other cultural group leaders would benefit any, any organization. Because the McGregor Smith report that looked like race in the workplace, what she said, which she found really frustrating in the fact that she's still having to write a report about race, that was that came out. I think it was reprinted during just after George Floyd time because it seemed to have been research seemed to have been undertaken in 2017, but in 2020 it came out again. And she talked about how this economy suffers because of racism and, and employees not being prepared to use the talents of its of its diverse cultural communities. And that's an interesting it's a McGregor Smith, it's just race called race in the workplace, yeah. Really interesting. There's there's kind of two just other short topics that I'd like to bring up with you. Um, we've we've covered them a little bit, but can we go can we go back to the term BAME and the terminology? So you you mentioned you use the term global majority. 
is the term Bane problematic or they're just kind of what what are your thoughts on the terminology? I think um as 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 people, as humans, we we need we seem to need acronyms, don't we? We seem to need a place of putting people together in pockets so that we can deal mentally and physically with where we've positioned them and then where we've positioned ourselves. So B stands for black. A stands for Asian. So we've got a color, we've got a continent, and then the others, anyone else who defines themselves as not white British comes on the, the other MEB. And I think this is, this is an evolving experience because we were BME before, um, black and white. So at that point, Asian was in the other, in the ME. Um, before that, um, I mean, we were colored in the 60s. Um, we've had lots of, I'm trying to think of some of the acronyms. We've had different acronyms as we've gone along. So it's, uh, it's almost like a lazy way of looking at people, but it serves, it served its purpose, if you like, but it drew attention to the fact that it maybe is not what we should be using. What happens then is that people say, I don't like them, but they don't say what they like other than I'm going to reference you to um, Rosemary Campbell Stevens' um, Educational Leadership in a Global Majority. Um, um, until behind, standing behind Rose, Rosemary's principle that we are the global majority, that's why Dawn and I and others begin to use that language because it positions you mentally in a different space. So you're a majority who's minoritized in a different culture. Um, so I don't know what the what who's gonna come up with what, but I do know that I know that I'm looking at black and black heritage children when I go into school, and so I will go with global majority, and, and, and not until because that's a factual thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, so, but we'll wait and see, and whether any whether that will go national. I'm trying to find someone in the randomly trust to to talk about the terminology they use in their report people of color and to debunk the idea that white is not a color so what do i think of them i think it's run its time it's run its course it's been held up to the light for criticism and it hasn't withstood the criticism so but how people from the asian continent which is so diverse want to be defined from the African continent originally, how we want to define, we may just have to call what it what it is. Yeah. So African heritage, um, Asian heritage, and not have an acronym. Maybe we won't have an acronym. Name is quite a shorthand way of describing a group of people, and that has not been examined. And I don't intend to write a book, but if I did, I would probably examine that and like, who do you think you are sort of way. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I guess we'll kind of finish with a pretty obvious one, but if I could go back to um, that uh, Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities report. So, I mean, obviously the things that we've been discussing today we can see that you know systemic racism even the the report that came out you know this and study obviously shows that systemic racism is a thing so i mean how can they really come out by saying that um britain is not de deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities i mean 
you know, where, where does that come from? And, and does that help shift the, the picture or help shift the emphasis away from racism? Or does that make it worse? Like a say, a saying a statement like that? What, what do you think? Certainly got people talking, didn't it? Maybe people who'd never discussed race before discussed it then. That report was about who was put in charge of the report. And my input there is before that committee, and I was part of a previous one uh, organisation at Downing Street, and I just happened to be part of it because it was looking at how big organisations, we were holding big organisations to account for how they were introducing and developing their race policies and that was under one minister the minister changed and it became Boris Johnson so of course he wants someone who thinks like him not quite look like him but thinks like him and he chose someone who believes there's no systemic racism even though the person is black who's writing it because he believes he's never faced it and he thinks it's all delusional and in our heads not all of it but some of it so the report was quick and we, I, I'm a patron of the Rich Society, and we put four submissions in which were ignored initially until it started being criticised and suddenly our names were added to the list of people who contributed and then we said, please, can you take our name off that, that report? So you will always get reports like that. In fact, when you have, if you go back to the original report, that looked at systemic racism and said quite clearly, you're going to tell me who it was in a minute, and it said quite clearly there is. There is because that's how people have been since the people in, because it's people, as I said right at the beginning. The institution is a building. The institution is the people in the building. And if you come from a background of white superiority, you're going to behave in a superior way. And you're going to look at the majority of the world's population and say, you're just not as good as we are. And that's what happens. To then have a black man support that is where the outcry came. And that's not to say everyone, every white person is racist, but it's to say at institutional level, there are things going on that are not right, are not fair, and are not just. Hence the equality report, hence the protected categories. Please tell me why we need an organization that have to say, we're gonna protect this group of people, disabled people, we're gonna protect women, we're gonna protect pregnant women. Why in our psyche and our being can't we just do that? Why do we need legislation? This is my bandwagon. Why do we need legislation to say, we've got to protect people who are disabled, or we've got to protect black people, or we've got to protect those women, or we've got to protect people whose genders are different to what we perceive genders should be. But it's, it's a bigger picture, isn't it, than, than race? Because the chances are, if you're racist, you might very well be something else, it's as well. It's just that the, our track record in British history is based on systemic racism. It's based on saying people from the African continent are part human, um, not three-fifths human, I think we were called back then. 
It's based on them saying that nothing, Africa has nothing good, yet it's raping and pillaging all the best resources in Africa. So there's a dichotomy, yeah? Nothing here, rubbish people, they can't do this, they can't do that. They're less than human, but oh, look, we've got all their trophies in our museum. So if that's what I'm on my bandwagon, so let me get off of it for a minute. Um, so seriously, so institutional racism, yes. What we do about it is that we do what Haringey, what HEP's doing, we do the best we can. And then HEP works with other authorities and together make a bigger and a bigger collective. And leaders in Haringey and local authorities and whichever one around the country hold themselves to account. But if you don't believe that people are equal, how are you going to hold yourself to account? So that's how. That's why it's so big. That's why we've, we've got yet another report, which frustrated me. And I did read it, by the way. I just, oh God, yeah. And also, I've lived now. I've been. I've lived a long time. Number one and number two. I've lived in this country a long time. And it's when when I came, I didn't know the word racism actually until I came to this country. And even then, back in the sixties, they used prejudice, these other terms were used. It's not so much racism that was used, that, that evolved as well. But certainly from the 50s here, the people who first came to help rebuild the country, they've had to fight for rights. And we mustn't forget those people. But also we mustn't forget the young dynamic, young people today who are still fighting for the rights that their great and great great grandparents have been fighting for because some of the children are very young they will have they'll be four generations in right um yeah but i'll do what i do as long as i can do what i do but what i what I, the realness i want to raise is that there are lots of people like me doing what i do doing more than i do doing different things than i do but all champion the right for justice justice and fairness for the black community and for their group, for their cultural groups, whichever their cultural groups are. So I don't stand alone. I stand among a group of people who says we stand up for fairness and justice. That's great. And I think that's a really powerful note to end on. Thank you. Um, Marva, just before I let you go, uh, you mentioned a book that people might want to read. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's called Educational Leadership and the Global Majority, Decolonizing Narratives. It's a, it's a condensed, took her five years to write, by the way, and research. It's a, I, almost every page I've scribbled on because Rosemary and I have worked closely together. So she still hasn't signed the book, but I, I would like her to sign it, even though she's my old friend. But yeah, but, um, but that's that. You know what it does? If you know nothing, it tells you everything. Because she led investing in diversity for the whole bigger picture. She did a secondary school. She was a secondary head before she branched out to be do her own thing. So she's had to, like we have, to do our research. But she took five years out to do that level of research, going back to the 100 to 600 century going right back before Benin, before the Benin Empire, before it was um, um, destroyed. 
going way back. She and but also talking about today and what's happening in our communities. Because she lived, she grew, she grew up in Birmingham. She worked in Towerham in Walton Forest, and she has run many global programs. Okay, so that's me. And that's me on my promotion ladder. She's got to pay me for doing that, and I'm gonna tell her as soon as she. Um, yeah, but wherever I go, I. Now it's only been recently out, by the way. Yes, it's very, very recent, 2021. Okay, great, Marva. Well, thank you. It was, it was really great talking to you, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. That was Marva Rollins, a school improvement partner for Haringey Education Partnership and a member of the Racial Equity Steering Group, speaking about the ENFER report, Racial Equality in the Teacher Workforce and race in education more broadly. If you would like to do any further reading on the subject, the book that Marva mentioned is called Educational Leadership and the Global Majority by Rosemary M. Campbell-Stevens. If you have any comments or questions about the show, please email me at luke.kemper at haringayeducationpartnership.co.uk. Also, on a related note, HEP has published a blog post with its own racial analysis of school rules in Haringey which I completed with the help of Chi Tsang, our data analyst. If you'd like to take a look and see how Haringey compares with the national data, check out the post on the Haringey Education Partnership website or through the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to HEP Talks. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We have more exciting content coming up next month, including interviews with more of our school improvement partners, a look at some of our nursery member schools, and a chat with a local school muralist. So stay tuned. I'm Luke Kemper, and you've been listening to HEP Talks.